Hey, everybody. Uh, it's Lonnie just coming in to do a quick intro for the second half of our discussion with Karen Berger. Once again, any audio problems are my fault and I apologize in advance and I hope it will not take away from your enjoyment of this amazing discussion. Thank you. So hold on, let me just let me just say that, and even when I was there, which is you know some years later, this whole idea that you would ideally take an obscure character that was already in the company, but no one had thought of in years, um, and and you would do something new with them. And of course, as time went on, there were fewer and fewer obscure characters that you could you could you uh, utilize. But so this takes us. I think to to Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean, who kind of came in as a pair to you, right? They did. They did. It's funny, you know. When I met Neil Gaiman, I didn't realize that I had known him already, um, but we hadn't um, uh, met formally before. And Neil, I first well, Neil actually before I actually met Neil, Neil had written to me several times and then called me. When he wrote um, at to DC you, like, Comics, like at DC physical Comics, mail, right? Physical mail, snail mail, which was all there was. Um, when I was editing Swamp Thing, and, he, and you know, lovely guy, um, very polite and, and very gracious. And he was, well, you know, I'm a new writer, I'm trying to break into comics. And, um, you know, I wrote this story, a kind of a Swamp Thing, a Swamp Thing story called Jack in the Green about another, you know, kind of historical version of Swamp Thing, which this Alan was already, I think, starting to do different formations of Swamp Thing in different time periods. So, so Neil did one of Jack in the Green, you know, Neil's specialty, you know, old English um, kind of stuff. So anyway, um, and so wait, I, wait, can I ask? So sure. was Jack in the Green, was it Victorian or medieval? Do you remember what time period it was? Um, I don't specifically. I remember it more as a maybe more like 1600s or 1700s. Mm. I think I can be totally wrong, but I think it was a fair and it was very, you know, really took place like in, you know, countryside, rural England. So um, where I think. So that was you know, already a big interest of Neil's, that going uh, totally, back into totally. the historical period. Yes, that and hedgehogs, right? Neil always <laughs> te te tease Neil about it. He always would try to get hedgehogs into his stories wait, as, wait, wait. as much as he could. Wait yes. a minute. I have never freaking heard this before. Are you telling me that Neil has always been trying to get hedgehogs in and as an editor, you were editing the hedgehogs <laughs> out? Not exactly, but it, but you know, Neil, one of the, one of the great things about working with Neil is that we used to talk a lot on the phone. Um, and Neil just loved to talk, you know, I think, you know, it was, he still likes to talk. Um, but I think, you know, it was just his way also just to, you know, in terms of, um, uh, you know, trying to kind of talk about his stories and, and, and what he was doing, particularly with Sam and where he wanted to go and the types of stories and issues and themes he wanted to explore. But, but a lot of it is just, you know, so much of any good creative process, other relationships that you build with people, mm -hmm. um, you can work you know, not saying you can't be a hermit and work by yourself and and as a writer or an artist and come out two years later with it with a, you know a masterpiece. Um, but one of the things about comics, which is so great and one of the reasons why I was drawn to it, is that there's such a great collaborative aspect between um, uh, if it works, <laughs> if it works well, um, 
uh, between the people working on a comic series. And, and I think the best editors um, are the ones who really engage the writers and the artists that they work with and, and um, on a personal level as well as on a professional level. Um, and I'm not saying you have to sleep over their house, but, um, but I think, uh, you know, again, you know, when you're a writer and artist, I mean, you're, you're out there, you're being, you're, you're putting your creativity out there. You know, it's a very, really brave and scary thing to do, to be honest. Um, and so I think with Neil, it was just, you know, we got along really well. You know, um, he's really nice. He was funny. We had a good time talking to each other. And we would just talk very often. And and one of the, one, we talked so often and for such long conversations that when I was pregnant with Zach, my first son, um, we were talking about, oh God, it was, it, I forget what exact storyline we were approaching in Salmon at that point, but it was something historical. Neil was going, talking about all how, hey, Karen, did you know that back in 1600s, this is how plumbing was done in London and, and all the rats was were it? around. And, and somehow he's talking about, somehow hedgehogs got its way in. <laughs> and, you know, and it was, stuff was fascinating. I mean, but, you know, we, we were, ended up veering so off topic. And then, like, I actually, like, I was like, oh, Neil, I, I, I think I... I think my water just broke. So anyway, so I started, so, and I actually, and, and I, I was out I, getting your lunch. And you were I out was getting, getting my lunch. Lunches. And I think I didn't even hang up the phone. I don't know if I hung up the phone or I don't know, whatever. I said, can I call you back? And then whatever. And, and you were a little early. We were not I was, expecting we were you not to go expecting, into labor. I was six weeks early, but it made me think it was great. And a wonderful, wonderful son who is now 30 years old. But anyway, so, um, and it was in the middle of a big Sandman promotion month. Like we had, was it, was it? A, yeah. it was a big Sandman promotion month. And Karen kept reassuring me that before I go on maternity leave, I am going to prep you, Elisa, and tell you everything you need to do. And instead, I came back with her lunch and she was gone. So That's you right. know who did all the prepping? You did. Neil. Oh, Neil did. Neil. <laughs> As would, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Neil yeah. was very, this is, we're way off like onto a tangent here but yes that was so wait a second so the hedgehog anyway neil, neil got not... neil got such a got such a kick out of being but there wait a second this is <laughs> when i this went is... to labor but it was like it, it just made sense but you this know? Is i spent so much time talking to neil didn't realize how much hedgehogs figured in this whole history of you and neil and sandman <laughs> and i'm just i'm I knew ravens were important. I didn't understand about hedgehogs, and I'm. No, Neil kind of always liked the kind of cute, squirrely, um, you know, creatures. I mean, I remember when we first met. Uh, you know, Neil was a big comic books fan, and you know, uh, I remember when he st he was saying, you know, Goldie was like my favorite. You know, Goldie this gargoyle was like my favorite character reading House of Mystery as a kid. So um went back in the in the not back when the comic was first created, not when I took it on because Neil and I are fairly close in age. So anyway, um but yeah, but Neil did get to write Goldie and and uh Salmon, which was really great. It was great for me too, because House of Mystery was my first comic that I edited, so it was really nice. I was so happy that Neil made Keenan Abel a big part of those early Sandman issues. 
Okay, um, okay, so wait, I want to go back. So here's Neil. Now, when I uh, first got to meet Neil as well, he had, as we've already talked in this podcast, he had a baby face. I mean, a complete baby face with a lot of the floppy dark hair, a black motorcycle jacket, shades. Was he already... Black t-shirt. Was he, Yeah, black, everything black. Was, was he already like the Roy, like a friendlier... He was a cross between Ted Lasso and Roy, what's his name, Roy? Uh, Roy Kent. Yes. <laughs> Roy Kent. Sorry. So he looked no, like he Roy Kent, but he acted like Ted Lasso. No, he didn't act like Ted Lasso. I mean, he was really sweet and positive. Yeah, he, he, no? he, he didn't act like Ted Lasso. Right. Yeah, no, 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 no. But what um, was he like? What was your first impression? And of Dave? Well, when I, so then I, I actually, so I physically met Neil um, on my second trip over to England. I went, um, Jeanette, Khan, and Dick Giordano um, joined, you know, the three of us went over together. Um, I, we rented a hotel suite, you know, uh, with a meeting room where, um, I, where basically every hour on the hour for like three days, um, we met with different writers and artists. Some of it was to just, Hey, these are artists who we'd be, some artists we were, and writers and artists were already working at DC. Some we hadn't, again, we were really trying to expand the reach of, of, um, what DC Comics was doing at the time, but also just to bring a new talent. And um, and what I had done before is that I, I, I you know, um, like a good good editor trying to, you know, show that I knew what I was doing. Um, I, uh, I, I really did a lot of research and reached out to a lot of different established UK writers and artists. Um, and, and, and the people, you know, people's work I had seen in underground stuff like Warren Police and and um and his brother Gary and uh uh and I just sort of put the word out that I was looking for we were looking for new writers and artists to work for for DC and um and we were looking for pitches and we were looking at that stage again we were not doing creator own books so it was you know because Swamp Thing was out People had heard that Hellblazer was. I think Hellblazer might have just come out at this stage, and um, so it was kind of like, can you pitch us stuff like a, an obscure DC character, something with horror and supernatural? Um, and um, so we were hearing pitches from different writers, and I'd met Neil, as well as I'd met Grant Morrison um, uh, um, at those early me- meetings. Um, didn't meet Pete Milligan till later. And Garth Ennis was several years later because Garth is much younger than everybody. But Neil, um, Nick Landau, um, who is the um, uh, owner of Titan Books and also one of the founding owners of Forbidden Planet Comics. Um, There's still a store in New York. Um, There is, started off as UK store and then it expanded. And I think... Nick, whatever, nobody cares who owns the Forbidden... I mean, I care, Nick. They do still own the Forbidden Comics, comic stores. But anyway, they had started a a small press. And he was... Nick was... Uh, had said to uh, Dick and, and me um, beforehand, is like, hey, there are these two new guys. I'm publishing something called Violent Cases. New guys haven't done anything yet. Um, Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean. I think you should look at their work. And 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 um, and I think he had called us when we were 
already in London or right before whatever. And I remember when Jeanette and Dick and I were going on a list of people who I had set up of people other other, you know, other writers and artists were recommended to me. Um, and uh, we were kind of like Neil Gaiman. Um, and I don't even think they even mentioned Dave. They just mentioned Neil. And I was like, Neil, do we know him? I was like, no, I don't think we know him. And I didn't even, I didn't remember that he was the guy who had called me on the short story. Jack in the Green thingy, whatever. So um, so anyway, knock on the door for their schedule time. I opened the door. It's like, oh, you're Neil Gaiman. And it all sort of kind of fell into place and that he was the Jack in the Green guy. And um, so he, he and Dave sat down and Dave, Neil was very clever and charming and uh, great talker, always has been a great talker, always will be a good talker. And he, you know, was was quick to pitch several ideas. You know, one was a new take on, uh, I think, The Phantom Stranger, but someone else was already doing that in the DC universe. And then I think he wanted to do, I think he had also, no, he wasn't Hellblazer, because I don't know. There was some other character. And then he had mentioned- Black Orchid? Not yet. Then he would mentioned Sandman. Blackheart comes later. He mentioned Sandman, and we were like, "No, someone else is doing something on the Golden Age, on the not the Golden Age, on the um, Silver Age Sandman." And um, so now you can't, you know, you can't do that. And then he was like, "What about Black Orchid?" And I had no idea who Black Orchid was, and because of Neil's accent, which is not a very heavy British accent, but. Um, People do pronounce things in different syllables. <laughs> and I did not know a lot. I still, even though I'd been working at DC for probably 10 years, no, probably more. I didn't know how long I was there at that stage. Anyway, I'd been working there a, a long time, but I was still very insecure. I still am about old DC characters. I, you know, I DC has so many, such a long history and so many obscure characters, and not even that obscure what characters. Did you think he I had just said? didn't know. So I was very kind of, I, I, you know, I didn't want to like pretend that I didn't know what I was talking about. Um, and I thought, but I thought he said Black Hawk Kid. Because <laughs> I knew that Black Hawk was a comic series, because I think that time Howard Chaikin had just done something. Um, so. Uh, you know, um, revisiting the war characters. And, and no, it was Black Orchid. Anyway, everyone got a big laugh out of that, and they, um, whatever. So, and we're like, hey, that's something that, you know, no one, I mean, I don't know the last time Black Orchid had, had even appeared in a comic. It was probably decades and decades before um, Neil had mentioned um, the character to me. Anyway, and then, and then, towards the end of the meeting. So we were like, okay, this sounds great. Go back, write a pitch, blah, blah, we want to hear more. And then and, and Dave McKean, who was saying nothing the whole time, he was just looked really nervous. He was really shy. He was just looking down at his feet the whole time while Neil just kind of, you know, uh, did his stuff there. And, uh, and then, you know, Neil was like, well, you know, you got to see Dave's art on violent cases. And um, had a huge, um, you know, portfolio of his original art. And he opened up, you know, his portfolio, and we just looked at his work. Dick June and I were like, "Wow, this guy is just incredible." There were like, you know, um, shades of Bill Sienkiewicz and Ralph Steadman, and just this whole um, imaginative illustration style. Um, his storytelling, his composition, his sense of design was so um, innovative. And even though it was very early on in his career, he man, he 
really knew what the hell he was doing. So yeah, that's kind of how that started. And um, yeah. And then so, I and then based on that, even before Black Orc came out, I hired Dave to do Hellblazer. Actually, Hellblazer had not the Hellblazer covers because Hellblazer had not come out, and we had not announced it because Neil did pitch me a John Constantine thing. I think Grant Morrison had too, <laughs> and we're like, no, this is already in development with someone else. So yeah, so it was actually yeah. So it was at that meeting while we were waiting around to give Dave for Black Orchid to come together. We're like, we got to give this guy some work. So. That's he did the Hellblazer covers. Okay, well, so now yeah. let me ask you in terms of, I mean, obviously Dave's style is much more um, fine art and symbolic and evocative rather than, you know, in, in in most of the comic books that I grew up, if Wonder if it was a Wonder Woman comic, you could recognize Wonder Woman on the cover. And, you know, if it was, I don't know, Animal Man, you can recognize Animal Man on the cover. So at at what point with Dave did you, you know, how did it come about that the Sandman covers became so much more abstract and um, and and different from I guess most of the other comic book covers out there? It was all Dave. It was all Dave. I mean, Dave just kind of, you know, had these incredible ideas um, and. He, his sensibility just really, and his influence really came more from outside comics in terms of, of, of you know, his art and, and his approach. Um, not saying that he wasn't, you know, um, you know, influenced by, you know, um, I'm sure certain comics artists, I, I don't know exactly whom for sure, but it wasn't like he didn't know comics, but he didn't come on as a big comics fan to the best of my recollection where, I know that Neil was a real comics fan, um, and mo- you know, practically everybody was at the time who was who was writing and drawing comics. Um, unlike me, who just kind of fell into it, um, uh, you know, as an editor. Um, and so, but yeah, so I think Dave just I think was really just you know saw um, what this potential you know in you know to to get more abstract um, with with um the cover imagery and to take in many ways more of a conceptual approach and you know a lot when you would look when you look at book covers you know you don't have literal in many cases you don't have like a literal um the best book book covers i think don't have literal interpretations of what's going on in the story it's um you know it's it's imagery it's abstract it's a combination of 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 media at times and i mean dave did all this stuff when he was really a pioneer in using mixed media in in comics art, that's for sure. Um, and those early Sandman covers, he um, he would physically construct this um, his covers, like those first eight Sandman covers. He had constructed out of wood, you know, this um, these wood frames, um, and he would change the imagery. He would change the. Um, uh, the, the objects in on the shelves in the border of the frame of, of each issue, the first eight issues, but then he would paint a different um, image. And Sam, of, 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 in that sense, you know, a character or characters. Um, but Sandman wasn't first issue of the cover, um, Sandman character. And 
he did not appear. Um, and this is something maybe, Lisa, since you remember more things than I do about Sandman. Um, I did an interview the other day where I had said, and maybe erroneously, that Sandman didn't appear again until Sandman 50 on the cover. And, um, and it was a huge thing. And I could be wrong. He might have appeared earlier. But I, yeah, it was a huge thing at the time, at least, again, for the first storyline, the first year of a comic, not to have your main character. You, the, it was a rule in comics. The star of your character, the t- your title character, was on the cover of each issue. And we did not do that. And that was a huge thing, a huge thing at the time. I remember, uh, I, I mean, I, I remember, you know, a lot of the debates with Curtis King, who was our cover editor. I think uh, Lonnie and I have talked in the past about the whole nipple situation where I think Curtis was always looking for stray nipples that Mickey might have slipped into the art somewhere. But Neil wrote me at one point saying, I was the model on the cover of 14, also 13 and 16. So I'm assuming he was the model for... Morpheus and not yeah. for yeah no we a yeah or yeah something. and, and the uh, DC ended up marking made magnets out of those covers and I have them on my fr- refrigerator at home but yes DC was the model yes okay I'm sorry so yeah so he was not but yeah he was Morpheus but he was with other and uh, it whatever. still was very abstract in its yes. way so I have I I know and that Dave, yeah and then Dave would would change his his artistic approach and the whole design. I mean, Dave yeah. was a fantastic, is a fantastic um, graphic designer as well. And he would change the design and the, his cover technique his, for each storyline. So it's really, really pretty cool. Amazing. So not only- But he had great material to work with, Neil. So yes, Yeah, so I mean, so not only was Dave changing his style from storyline to storyline, but we ended up, you ended up, changing artists from storyline to storyline. Can you talk about the thought process that went into figuring out, you know, how much was you, how much was Neil, when you were trying to pair uh, an artist with an upcoming story, short story or longer storyline? When when uh, we first um, signed the deal with Neil to write Sandman, um, we did not have an artist right away. Um, Neil was a new writer. Um, nobody knew who he was. Um, we had this great um, pitch from him, but you know, we didn't necessarily. I will say, I I won't talk in the editorial. We I'll talk in the editorial. I um, the personal I is that um, you know I you know I knew Neil was really talented, but um, I didn't you know none of us knew you know that Neil would become Neil Gaiman at the time and and that he would create you know a literary comics masterpiece and this was salmon was yet another book new series that i was doing at the time so with another kind of up-and-coming new british talent so ideally what you usually do when you have a new writer is you try to get an established artist because you want the readers to kind of have they have someone recognizable when you're doing a new, you know, for someone, appeal for someone to buy it. Um, and there just weren't, you know, uh, there weren't really any artists that I think we thought we could get for the series. Um, and uh, we also wanted kind of a different look for it. And and um, 
And Neil and I were meeting on one of my British trips. At this point, I was just going on my own. I'd go and go to England like two or three times a year just to check in with the different writers and artists and again to always hear new pitches and to meet up with people I was regularly working with at, as the years went on. Um, but this was still, you know, early before, you know, we had signed the deal with Salmon and I was meeting with Neil and we were just trying to find artists and thinking of different people and somehow he probably had suggested Sam Keith or we both had, we had both seen Sam's work somewhere. We both really liked it. It was on, I think on an indie comic. I don't remember which one, I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, and then we just called him up and called Sam up because I got his phone number from someone at the DC office. So I called him from England. And I don't think Neil believed who we were when we called because I think we both talked to him. You mean and Sam? So Sam, Sam, Sam yeah. Oh, sorry. I don't think Sam uh, believed who we were, but Sam was such a sweet guy, such a nice guy. And he had suggested Mike Dringenberg as an anchor. And, um, and they, you know, were really were a great um, artistic team. And, and then Mike eventually took over as the lead Sam and artist because uh, with issue. Um, six I believe um, and because uh, Sam after he drew the first issue he uh, quit the book he didn't want to draw it anymore um, so we were like uh oh what are we going to do now and then we knew that uh, Mike Tringenberg was also a talented penciler and an anchor as well too so um, he uh, yeah so it's, it sort of was a nice segue um, you know, for, for and Mike there's, becoming there's a whole... the regular artist of the, yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, so I think, yes, I think Sam came back and did seven, but but Mike did six, issue six, which was the diner story. Um, and then issue eight was the death story, which I think was, yeah, yeah. That was, was, that was, was, was Mike Dringenberg. Mike Dringenberg, yeah. But there was a whole, there's a whole thread right now on Twitter about, you know, how uh, Sam Keith and his artwork is not, has not gotten as much appreciation and he really I mean he created the look of the helm he created oh, yeah, a yeah. lot of you know the look of of these early salmon things that are well one of the things so that, that I know that that attracted Neil and I to, to Sam's work he's had a great sense of design um as a as an artist and he he would create the, uh, these really great filigree and borders. There's a whole, there's a real modern Gothic look mm -hmm. to his style. Even though he had, his line was kind of a cartoony incline, there, there was still, still, his imagery was Gothic. So sort of, you know, come through, the, all, you know, um, realized through this sort of cartoony line. So it was, a, it was a unique blend, actually, when you think about it, for a horror comic to be drawn by a guy who didn't have, I mean, he did work with a lot of, you know, shadow and, um, and, and deep, deep ink line and deep blocks in his work. Um, but his, his characters might not have been sort of your stereotypical, like, you know, dripping flesh or, or very lot of fine, fine detail. Um, but it was uh, just beautiful, um, you know, beautiful nuance to, to a lot of, uh, you know, his textures and, and filigree and all this kind of cool shit he put in the backgrounds. So thinking about this being a horror book, Lonnie and I have talked during this podcast about 
both appreciating some of the more horror rich <laughs> storylines and to some extent struggling with them because perhaps I mean for me as I get older I find horror a little harder to take and I think Lonnie has her own uh you know just horror is not her first literary taste that she she goes for in the palette so how can you talk a little bit about your relationship with horror as a genre and with horror in in the Sandman yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, I like horror as a genre because you, it's a, it's a, it's a great backdrop to tell stories um, about the real world, um, about disturbing things, about humankind, about society. Um, but if you if you tell stories that are too on the nose when your themes are too on the nose and you know it, it kind of turns off people you know if if you want to you know do a story about um you know politics or 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 race or um gender if if you're kind of just too nose too on the nose and too specific about certain things and and with horror when you take when you turn things up a notch in terms of um uh kind of an extreme background um an extreme situation i would say more than extreme background then um you're able to kind of tell you know it's a great backdrop to to tell um stories that you might not normally tell blah 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 so it's kind of instead of a teaspoon of sugar helps the medicine go down you're saying kind of like a teaspoon of blood and gore helps the societal uh, <laughs> a commentary go down um on some level on some level but but i don't necessarily think that a lot of the comics were that gory, the uh, Sandman. Um, I guess some. I guess the stuff in Hell. I mean, they're actually. I take it back. There was a lot of really horrible <laughs> stuff. Um, Hedgehogs and gore. Hedge yeah, I mean, yeah. I you know injured you know the whole issue six with needles to the eye and all that stuff. So and Ooh, and, yes. and all the demons and season of mist. I mean, there, there was, but it was, um, you know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's. Uh, for some reason, women seem to be attracted to horror stories. Um, I, you know, Paul Levitz told me when I first started working is that we, you know, we sort of anecdotally know that more women read more girls than young women or young what read House of Mystery, the horror books. Um, I think just from word of mouth and letter columns and people writing in. And um, I was a huge Stephen King fan growing up, huge Stephen King fan growing up. So I already sort of had that kind of in my, you know, in my uh, interest. Well, um, I have this theory that both horror background. and romance are the most visceral of the genres that if you want to go and have this intense empathic i feel like i am living this story experience romance and horror are your genres for that mm -hmm. yeah yeah so now as we think about the sandman is there uh i mean obviously there's so many different stories wonderful short stories wonderful longer storylines i i'm not going to ask you to pick a favorite 
child. But are there any that you find yourself wanting to reread more than others that you come back to? Yeah, it is like picking a favorite child. I have many favorite children uh, when it comes to Sandman. Um, I, I mean, the whole series is just, you know, fantastic you know and you know at least when you and I were talking about you know prep when we were prepping for this podcast and we were talking about you know the old days and working on salmon and and hanging out with Neil and working with Neil um and then we were um looking through um some uh, the old salmon gra- uh, graffiti designs did this big um limited edition um huge um like 150 dollar book which reproduced um, the first issue, original the art. Physical boards. The physical boards. And we were looking at that a Can lot you describe of, from how issue one. big those boards yeah, the are? Board, they 11 by 17. 11 seven by pages. 17, yeah. And, I'm using um, my hands. You right. can't see. Yeah, and it was really quite. Uh, so we were looking through that and. Uh, it was really kind of great. And you can um, see our comments. I mean, different pages, your comments, my comments, reverse. On the original Art and Blue line, yes. It, so it brings produce? it back. And I, I feel that comics today, although I love working, you know, still to be working in comics, but everything's digital. And so you don't. I, I mean, miss I miss the smell. I of, miss the smell of, of cigarettes. All yeah, the exactly. Brits used to smoke. Up, so the boards reeked of cigarettes and a little beer, a little yeasty smell mm-hmm, coming mm-hmm. off the boards. I know. I know. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So, we, okay. So. I forgot what your question was. So I'm my sorry. question was, right. um, beside, beyond the cigarettes and beer, is there, okay, so. Wait, oh, which are my favorite no, issues? No, no, yes, so I'm yes, going to yes. ask you. My just, Sam, no. So can I'm going to ask you, what they you are? pick one yeah. short story and one longer, just the first one that comes to your mind. You can change the answer the next time we speak. Okay. Um, short story, Men of Good Fortune, which is Sam Man. Oh, um, we just read that. Yes, it's that was the one where we meet Hob Gadling. Hob Gadling and Shakespeare. Drawn by Michael Zuli. No, he doesn't meet Shakespeare in that issue. No, he meets Shakespeare at the yeah, very end. No, he does meet Shakespeare. Shakespeare in the, is in the background right, of the pub. We right, meet right. Hob Gadling. Yes, yes, yeah. It's and the beginning of the whole Shakespeare. The whole, right, thank you. Thank Saga. you. Saga. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I would probably say that's my favorite. Of the shorts. Um, yeah, of And my what about shorts. the longer storylines? Oh, God, that's so hard. You can change that's your answer so next time hard. we speak. I know. I'd probably say Game of You. Game of You. I'd probably say Game of You. It's, you know, Brief Lives is a close second. Um, Connie Ones is also neck and neck. But I, th- I think a Game of You. I think a Game of You. Yeah, I love the, the sort of parallel stories that Neil was telling. Um uh there um the storyline that colleen uh doran, doran yeah. did um and all the just the whole the cuckoo and the, and the, all the just beautiful strange fantasy stuff that was going on in that storyline i want to say we haven't gotten uh to that point in our rereading but uh and this is more for our listeners who are first time sandman readers uh we have already met the key character who will feature in A Game of You. And we've already encountered her dream world at the end of A Doll's House or Mm -hmm. towards the end of A Doll's House. Except we haven't talked about that because I screwed up in our last... We will, yes. No, actually, actually, you know, I think it was Colleen Duran who did the front story and it was Sean McManus who did the other, who did the, uh, the more fantasy Land of the Cuckoo, correct? 
Yes, yeah, so we had Sean so. and, and Colleen. And Colleen did the front story with, yeah, that was real world based. Yeah, yeah. They were living in the house. And, and stuff. I was working on it then. I think that's, well, we'll we're going to have a yeah. lot more. Maybe. But, you know, I love the kindly ones. I, I you know, I love Mark Kempel's art. You know, it, it's so bold and so daring and, and so different. And wow. I wanted, I, I'm really hoping that I can get you back at some point, both personally, just because we have more shoe shopping and comic book shopping to do. <laughs> and, and also because I, I'd like to talk to you more about this stuff as we go more deeply into it. Um, but I want to ask you one last question yes. for now. Yes, Which yes. is um, Sandman is the first successful DC comic, maybe comic that I know of, that just allowed the book to finish when the author was finished. Um, was that something that you and Neil worked on together? Was that part of, because that's sort of part of how we get the Sandman that we've got. It's right. It was allowed to be one yes. author's vision. Yes, well... While we were, you know, no, you know, back in the day when you work on a monthly comic, you just kind of work on it until, you know, until, you know, you, you run out of ideas. Drain the last drop of blood exactly. from the author. And it's time to, to bring on the, because everything was work for hire and, and they were company owned characters until you bring on the next writer. Um, and so you didn't really end so series. It was considered a great, I mean, great accomplishment going on for years and years and years. Um, but, you know, when working on Sandman, this was, you know, we already had a very different beast on our hands. And um, we were probably a couple, you know, I don't know how many years. I remember having the first conversation with Neil and we were at that point at 1325 in America. So I'm just trying to think where issue-wise we are in Sandman. We were probably about two-thirds of the way into Sandman at that point, maybe maybe halfway. Um, and because Swamp Thing had started in 1988, but Vertigo didn't start till 1993. So we already had a lot of Sandman under our belt when, you know, when we launched Vertigo. And um and I remember Neil saying, you know, is you know, you know, that he has an end in sight on on the book and and uh you know i know dc has never ended a series but it would be kind of weird if someone took it over i said yeah you know it would be kind of weird and uh so i said but i don't know neil you know i've never done anything like that before so anyway but you know i talked to jeanette and dick and they and paul and um it was you know it was a non-issue it was like yeah of course you know what neil has done here um is just so transformative um that this is not you know we had, did not have creator owned deals then when we when neil started salmon but also salmon was um still had connective tissue to the dc universe um so in its very early stages so uh you know so so stopping it was uh was uh it was definitely a precedent and uh it was totally the right thing to do and uh and i'm so glad that uh the powers that be decide to you know to sign off on that 
I am too. And I just, you know, I think that a lot of the books that you worked on now, uh, if, if people go into comic book stores, they may not see Vertigo on the cover as the imprint because Vertigo as an imprint doesn't exist now. It might in the reprint just say DC Comics on the cover, but that I know sucks, and you man. know <laughs> and <sucks>. we know. <laughs> they took the Vertigo label off, whatever. Yes. But this, this was, you know, your vision of creator-owned work. And even when it wasn't creator-owned, of really prioritizing the creative team, you know, along creator-driven, writer-driven, writer-driven. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, so when you go into a comic book store, even if you don't see Vertigo, it is there. It is there if, you know, in, in the DNA of so many of the books that are being made into major franchises now. And Karen, right now, you have your own imprint, Burger Books, at Dark Horse Comics, and you are continuing to work uh, on creator-owned projects and uh, to nurture new and and uh, give give um, new opportunities for for more established talent. Can you talk a little about Burger Books and what you're doing now? Uh, I left Vertigo uh, in 2013, and um, I had a wonderful career. Um, but after I left, I felt and I love comics. I felt that I've been doing this a long time. So let me take a break. Um, I didn't know if I wanted to work in comics again. Um, I did some early uh, producing work. Um, actually, Jeanette Kahn um, had approached me soon after I left DC, and Jeanette had gone, has gone on to produce um, you know, a number of films. And she said, hey, do you want to work with me? I can, when you kind of figure out what you want to do <laughs> post-life DC comics. So Jeanette was, so generous to me um, as a friend um, and, a, and a colleague and, and, and always a mentor. So I, I worked with her in kind of um, learning sort of, uh, you know, the ropes of uh, uh, producing um, for TV and film. Um, but then I was sort of kind of getting kind of bored um, because, you know, selling things in TV and film is like, really hard thing to do. So anyway, um, I still have some irons in the fire, but in terms of comics, which is my, you know, my my first love in terms of storytelling as, a, as an editor, um, I uh, really missed comics and I decided I wanted to come back in. And I uh, had been approached by a number of companies over the years after I'd left uh, DC and Vertigo to um, start something new. And also startups, and I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to, whatever. Nothing really appealed to me. But then uh, on my, I think I sort of had to come to the decision of my own to feel like, okay, I'm ready to get back in. And I sort of looked around and the the landscape, and um, Dark Horse just um, seemed like such a perfect fit for me. I had huge respect. I have huge respect for Mike Richardson and what he's built um, with a company. Um, I think Dark Horse just celebrated their 35th year. And, you know, um, Dark Horse has always created her own comics where it's always their um, uh, first uh, priority. They do a lot of great licensed and video game stuff as well, too. But their creator own deals were great. And to me, I felt like I needed to be at a place where um, creators' rights were um, 
you know, tantamount, where um, uh, where all the comics were produced, especially the graphic novels with really great production values and Dark Horse had all that. So um, yes, yeah, so I called up Mike and he was happy to hear from me and we and he said, yeah, come on over. So I um, started Burger Books like, um, in 2018, we started publishing. So it, it has been out now. We just celebrated our, our um, fourth anniversary and Burger Books is, is very much a continuation of, of, of Vertigo in terms of its sensibility, in terms of its heart, in terms of its, you know, in terms of, you know, my um, desire to work with writers and artists who are not only super talented, but are um, willing to go out there and, and tell different kinds of stories in, in, in different genres into really, you know, telling stories that one might not necessarily see in comics anymore. And um, I love working with new writers and artists to comics. I also love working with writers from different fields and bringing that into comics. Um, uh, our launch book was, um, we had two launch books, was uh, Anthony Bourdain's Hungry Ghosts. And I had worked with, um, Bourdain at um, Vertigo on his first comics work called Get Giro, which is a fantastic graphic novel that he co-wrote with Joel Rose. And um, and then he and Joel came back and, and did this amazing horror anthology. Um, so we worked, that was the first book. Um, and it was also kind of nice because here I, my, my first DC comic was House of Mystery 292, which was a horror anthology. My first Burger Books comic was a horror anthology, you know, co-written by Anthony Bourdain, which is pretty cool. So, um, and but I and, and then the second launch book was uh, Incognito, um, a uh, you know it was it was a, lit a literary, um, uh, greatly acclaimed graphic novel, which I had published in Vertigo by Matt Johnson and Warren Please. Um, I brought it over. The rights had, had had reverted. We republished a new edition, and then Matt did Matt and Warren did a prequel, Incognito Renaissance. So I had these two wonderful books that I launched with, and then I went on to work with Willow Wilson one, and and Chris Chris Ward and Visible Kingdom, which won Eisner Award for Best New Series. I, I worked with you know the Hugo and Nebula Award winning. Um, uh, novelist Nettie Okorafor, science fiction writer, um, um, on LaGuardia, uh, a graphic novel which with, with Tana Ford and as the artist. And that book not only won a Best Graphic Novel Collection, but it also won the Hugo Award. Um, I worked with the amazingly talented Christopher Cantwell, a uh, TV writer of co-creator of Halt and Catch Fire, one of my favorite shows. It's an AMC show that was on probably about eight years ago or so um, for four seasons, fabulous series. I was lucky enough to work with Chris on She Could Fly and a wonderful comic called Everything and something new that we haven't announced yet that is coming out next year. Um, Anna Sente, the great Anna Sente, you know, of, of you know, a, a, a legend, uh, legendary writer and editor at Marvel, and and work with her and David Aha 
um, a, a also amazing Marvel artist. We get to work on the seeds, um, this you know beautiful you know literary sci-fi alien horror story. So yeah, and so many other people. My you know old friend James Dematis worked on Girl in the Bay with me. So I got to work with so many wonderful people, and I still am. So I am very excited about that, and excited to have the platform to um, publish. You know these wonderfully talented people. Oh, I'm I'm so excited, and this is probably why. Uh, was it two years ago when you were inducted into the Eisner Hall of Fame? Yes, it was. Yes, I guess it must have been. It must have been three years ago. I think three years ago. Three years the ago. Yeah, like the, the year pandemic that I keep has, forgetting. I don't remember. It wasn't. Yeah, yeah. Because I was inducted a year before Paul and Jeanette were, which I always felt weird about that. But um, but yes, yeah. But you know, I think that you have been a pioneer as a woman in comics, and now I was more we- in the front lines too. I think when you're, yeah, for, yeah editors, uh, publishers are just more behind the scenes and uh, in these kind of awards things. Even though if it wasn't for Paul and Jeanette, I, again, I wouldn't be having this conversation. No, absolutely. Elisa wouldn't and be here. I would and not comics be here. would not be what they are today. And you, you have to have, I mean, you obviously have to have great um, talent, you know, creating and, you know, and executing these, you know, original ideas. But you have to have the support. Someone's got to pay for this thing to get it <laughs> out there um, and distribute it and, and market it. And, and you know, you want to be with a good publisher where you can that has that has integrity and and treats treats their talent well and compensates for them and gives them a stake in 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 the characters and the concepts that they create and that was what what Jeanette and Paul did and I was able to continue that and are still continuing it yes I am still continuing that yes exactly <laughs> so I cannot wait to talk to you again and of course, more comic yes. book and shoe shopping because this is very important. Um, but uh, yeah, a so, pleasure, a pleasure, my dear. And, and I've learned about the hedgehogs, which yes. is yes. life changing for me. Yes. Okay. As they should be. <laughs> thank um, you so much. And thank you for listening to us out there. Yes. Elisa and I would like to thank Karen Berger so much for taking the time to talk to us. Everybody listening, be sure to check out the link to Burger Books at Dark Horse Comics right there in your show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, and Stephania. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. We'll be back next week with Into the Night and Lost Hearts issues 15 and 16 of the Sandman series. We'll see you then. <laughs>